question. What do Solomon, baseball, and bowling have in common? Answer, three strikes. In baseball, three strikes and you're out. In bowling, three consecutive strikes are called a turkey. With Solomon, he disobeyed all three commandments that God gave to the kings of Israel. Solomon struck out. Solomon was a turkey. Three times he disobeyed God. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 16 and 17, God had commanded the kings of Israel, He shall not multiply horses for himself, neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. The kings of Israel should not accumulate horses, wives, or wealth. Too many horses could cause the king to trust in his cavalry rather than God. Too many wives could turn the king's affections and loyalty away from God. Too much money might make the king proud and might harden his heart. Solomon struck out on all three. He was a turkey. He disobeyed God. In 1 Kings chapter 11, we witness the fall of a once smart and skillful ruler. The wisest man in all the earth played the fool. Verse 1 says, the heresy began in his harem. But King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh. Women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. From the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, You shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after other gods. Solomon clung to these in love, and he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. 700 wives. Oh my. 300 concubines. In the ancient Orient, peace treaties were ratified when the lesser king gave his daughter in marriage to the greater king. And this gave both kings a common interest. Supposedly, the mightier king would be less likely to attack his in-laws This is probably how Solomon accumulated such a large harem. But his motive was not just political and diplomatic. Notice the last line in verse 2. Solomon clung to these in love. He liked pretty princesses and exotic foreign women. Today we might call Solomon a sex addict. The king had placed no reins on his sexual appetite. Depth and meaning with one woman had been replaced with variety and superficiality of many women. With 1,000 partners, Solomon had long stopped caring about these women as people. They'd become just objects to him, toys he used to satisfy his sexual fantasies. And in order to keep his harem happy, he compromised his loyalty to God. When these foreign women moved into his court, they brought with them their foreign gods and their pagan religions. Their idolatry became a spider that weaved a web around Solomon's heart that trapped him in his own appetites and injected poison into his life. 
to appease his wives, Solomon betrayed his God. You see, he would make these ever-increasing little concessions to pacify the pagan tastes of his wife. His indulgent lifestyle lacked the will to say no. Before long, he had fallen into full-fledged idolatry. He had introduced that kind of idolatry into Israel. You see, there's a lesson here. A little concession here and there. A small accommodation here and there. It begins to add up. Compromise tends to snowball. Once it starts, it's very difficult to stop. And this is the one component of pornography that most men underestimate. Guys start out thinking that pornography, you know, they start out thinking of it as a purely physical experience, but the compromise makes you weak. You indulge in a weakness, and it takes a spiritual toil. Compromise erodes your ability to make commitments to God and commitments to a spouse. It's no accident that the Internet is called the web. Beware of the spider. It's still at work. Solomon should have listened to his own proverb, Proverbs 27, verse 20, which he wrote, Hell and destruction are never full, so the eyes of man are never satisfied. Well, verse 4 says, For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God as was the heart of his father David. Solomon wakes up one day in a place he never thought possible. He's bowing before these hideous, lewd, pagan gods. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, a Canaanite fertility goddess, worshipped with depraved and lewd acts. And after Milcom or Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, this was the god that required child sacrifice. Solomon, how did you sink so low? You see, this is the question the sex addict, the man who gets hooked on pornography, eventually asks. One day he wakes up in some disgusting place that he never thought he would visit. He wakes up after some lewd act that he never thought he would do. And he can't believe how low he sunk. Verse 6 provides both the cause and the cure for Solomon's sexual sin. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord as did his father David. And here is the reason Solomon slid. He did not fully follow the Lord. Oh, he followed God partially. He went to church on occasion. He read his Bible every now and then. He made an offering from time to time. But radical obedience was never something that he tried. Solomon loved his sin more than he loved God, and so he made exceptions. He built into his life these little concessions that allowed him to pursue his urges. Yet herein also lies the cure. Not only was the cause of his sin the fact that he didn't follow the Lord, nevertheless, to break free from his sexual sin, he needs to fully follow the Lord. Do you fully follow the Lord? With your free time? Do you fully follow the Lord with your eyes and where you allow them to wander? Do you fully follow the Lord with every waking second, even late at night when you're alone by yourself on the computer and there's no one there to look over your shoulder? Do you fully follow the Lord at all times and in all places? 
Even when your flesh cries out to be fed, do you fully follow the Lord? Or do you make little compromises and little accommodations? Hey, the key to overcoming sexual sin is to burn the bridges. It's to allow no room in your life for retreats or for indulgences. It's to fully follow the Lord with where my eyes go, with where my mind goes, with where my heart goes, with how I spend my time, with the people that I hang with. It's to fully follow the Lord. That's how you win victory over this kind of sin. And yet Solomon did just the opposite. He built these places of compromise throughout the city of Jerusalem. We're told, then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. And he did likewise for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Solomon loved his wives more than he loved his God. And so the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Because you have done this and have not kept my covenant and my statutes which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. Remember, at this point in history, Solomon was the most powerful ruler on the earth. He seemed unconquerable. And yet the king of Israel had forgotten that his security lied not with horses or with wealth, but in his loyalty to God. And now in his rebellion, God promises to tear away the kingdom from him. Verse 12. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days. For the sake of your father David, I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away the whole kingdom. I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. A civil war will tear away the kingdom from Solomon and his dynasty in the reigns of his son Rehoboam. The Davidic dynasty will still reign. But it'll reign over one tribe, not twelve. The southern tribe of Judah. The northern ten tribes will become their own nation and serve their own king. Solomon is such a pathetic figure. He had so much going for him, but he blew it all. It's no accident that his spiritual bankruptcy is recorded in 1 Kings chapter 11. No accident. Well, Solomon's troubles begin when God raises up new enemies with old grudges. And let me summarize a little verses 14 through 25. During the reigns of David, General Joab waged war on Edom. And he slaughtered all the men except one young boy. The child's name was Hadad. And he escaped down to Egypt and he grew to be a man. And he won Pharaoh's favor and even married his sister-in-law. When David dies, Hadad returned home and he opposed Solomon. He became a pebble in the king's shoe. God also raised up another enemy on Solomon's northern border, a man by the name of Rezon. Verse 25 sums him up. He abhorred Israel and reigned over Syria. 
But the real threat to Solomon's throne comes from a former ally by the name of Jeroboam. Verse 26. Then Solomon's servant Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite from Zerida, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also rebelled against the king. Solomon's personal assistant turned traitor. Now what could have caused such a strong and loyal friendship to turn sour? Verse 27. And this is what caused him to rebel against the king. Solomon had built the Milo, or the fortress, and repaired the damages to the city of David his father. The man Jeroboam was a mighty man of valor. And Solomon, seeing that the young man was industrious, made him the officer over all the labor force of the house of Joseph. Solomon originally saw such that he promoted him. But it happened at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahiah, the Shelanite, met him on the way. And he had clothed himself with a new garment. And the two were alone in the field. And you know what Ahiah said to him, don't you? He said, Ahiah doing, Jeroboam. I'm sure he did. Ahiah doing there, guy. Anyway, then Ahiah took hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into 12 pieces. See, a common practice among Hebrew prophets was to use visual aids to dramatize their messages. He's acting it out here. He says to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and give ten tribes to you. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtaroth and Chemosh and Milcom, and have not walked in my ways to do what is right in my eyes and keep my statutes and my judgments as did his father David. However, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand because I have made him ruler over all the days of his life for the sake of my servant David, whom I chose because he kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and give it to you, ten tribes. And to his son I will give one tribe that my servant David may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen for myself to put my name there. So I will take you, and you shall reign over all your heart's desire, and you shall be king over Israel. God will punish Solomon for his idolatry by tearing away ten of the tribes and giving them to Jeroboam. But just because God uses Jeroboam as his instrument of judgment doesn't mean that the same rules don't apply to him. Verse 38 makes that clear. For then it shall be, if you heed all that I command you, walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight to keep my statutes and my commandments as my servant David did, then I will be with you and build for you an enduring house as I built for David. And I will give Israel to you and I will afflict the descendants of David because of this, but not forever. The implication is that if the house of Jeroboam obeys the Lord, walks in his commandments, God will bless Jeroboam and his reign over the northern ten tribes. If they don't, they too will be judged. Well, apparently the word of Jeroboam's encounter with the prophet makes its way back to the king. Thus, verse 40. 
Solomon therefore sought to kill Jeroboam. But Jeroboam arose and fled to Egypt, to Shishak, king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. And as he was packing his bags, he did his best Arnold impersonation. He said, I'll be back. He buys a round trip ticket to Egypt. He will be back. Now the rest of the acts of Solomon, all that he did and his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the acts of Solomon, a book we no longer possess? And the period that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. It's interesting that all three kings of the united monarchy, those who ruled over all the 12 tribes of Israel, remember the three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon, each reigned a total of 40 years each, a total of 120 years. Then Solomon rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father. You know, it's nice to think that Solomon repented of his idolatry and that one day we'll see him in heaven, but there's really no evidence of it here. There's no evidence of it in the history of Israel. There are some folks that believe that Solomon did repent later in his life and as a consequence of his repentance, wrote the book of Ecclesiastes as sort of a testimony of, of you know, how vain it is to search for meaning in life apart from God. That's the theme of Ecclesiastes. And it's, it could be. could be that he did repent. And, and Ecclesiastes is sort of his testimony. But I'm not sure. And I'm not sure that when we get to heaven, if we will see Solomon. I guess we'll find out when we get there. Verse 43. And Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. What a sad line, really. Rehoboam is suddenly given the authority to rule. But as we'll soon see, he didn't have the wisdom to rule. In his arrogance, he causes 500 years of damage. Chapter 12. And Rehoboam went to Shechem. For all Israel had gone to Shechem to make him king. So it happened when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat heard it, he was still in Egypt, for he had fled from the presence of King Solomon and had been dwelling in Egypt, that they sent and called him. Now Jeroboam arrives just in time for the new king's inauguration. It's a confrontation at the coronation. By the way, this name Jeroboam means, may the people be great. Perhaps he was a populist leader. His campaign slogan may have been, give the government back to the people. Let the people reign. Jeroboam was a champion of democracy. Verse 3. Then Jeroboam and the whole assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam saying, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the burdensome service of your father and his heavy yoke which he put on us and we will serve you. So he said to them, Depart for three days, then come back to me. And the people departed. Jeroboam was a Republican. He calls for tax cuts. And Solomon had raised taxes to fund his massive building projects. Now Israel is looking for some tax relief. The new king needs the weekend to mull it over. Isn't it amazing how though life has changed, some things remain the same? I mean, in 960 B.C., the issue was taxes. <laughs> That's the issue today. 
The politics today aren't much different than they were in Rehoboam's day. It's been said, a man pays a luxury tax on his billfold, an income tax on the stuff he puts in it, a sales tax on whatever he takes out, and an inheritance tax if there's anything left in it when he dies. We get taxed on all fronts. One man commented on the taxes we pay in today's America. He said, Patrick Henry should come back and see what taxation with representation looks like. Hey, in Romans chapter 13, verses 6 and 7, we are commanded as believers in Jesus Christ to pay our taxes. It is our duty to pay the duty. And if you believe in the Bible, you've got to pay your taxes if you want to be obedient. But as true as this passage is, whenever the government relaxes the tax, it usually turns out to be a good strategy. People respond to that positively. Verse 6, Well, then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who stood before his father Solomon while he still lived. These were the old guys. we got a picture of them. These were the elders. I mean, these were the advisors with experience. These were the men who'd been around the block a time or two. And he said, How do you advise me to answer these people? And they tell him, If you will be a servant to these people today, and serve them, and answer them, and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. Wow! Obviously, some of Solomon's wisdom had rubbed off on some of his advisors. This is a great lesson for all leaders, pastors, foremen on the job, office managers, CEOs. If you'll be a servant to the people, they'll go to great lengths to serve you. They'll support you with their service. That's not the answer that Rehoboam wanted to hear. Verse 8. But he rejected the advice which the elders had given him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him, who stood before him. These were Rehoboam's homies. There they were right there. These were his homeboys. These were the guys he had grown up with. His peers, the young men, the foolish men. These guys don't have a lick of wisdom. And they're drunk on power. And he asked them in verse 9. And he said to them, what advice do you give? How should we answer these people who have spoken to me saying, lighten the yoke which your father put on us? And here's their response. Then the young men who had grown up with him spoke to him saying, thus you should speak to this people who have spoken to you saying, your father made our yoke heavy, but you make it lighter on us. Thus you shall say to them, My little finger shall be thicker than my father's waist. In other words, I'm more of a man than he ever thought he was. And now whereas my father put a heavy yoke on you, I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scourges. Hey, you think the old man was tough on you? You had not seen nothing yet. I'm going to play rougher. I'm going to be tougher. The young guys want Rehoboam to flex his muscle and play rough and show no mercy. Okay, let me just pause. This story is chock full of a couple important lessons for leaders. If you're a leader in any venue, pay attention to this story. Here's one lesson. First of all, more often than not, people are more responsive to love than they are to lashes. 
They're more inclined to follow the person who feeds them, not beats them. Remember that. And then notice second, be careful whose advice you take. Don't just listen to your peers. Don't just listen to people who will tell you what you want to hear. Listen to the older person who speaks with the voice of wisdom and experience, who's gleaned some experience along the way. Sadly, Rehoboam learns neither of these lessons. Verse 12. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king had directed, saying, Come back to me the third day. Then the king answered the people roughly and rejected the advice which the elders had given him. And he spoke to them concerning the advice of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scourges. At least he leaves out the really arrogant line that they had suggested. My little finger shall be thicker than your father's. <laughs> that's, that's just, at least he, he's not claiming he's more of a man than his father. Verse 15. So the king did not listen to the people, for the turn of events was from the Lord, that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord had spoken by Ahiah, the Shilonite, to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. As always, God was behind these scenes. He was working out his will. Civil war was judgment on Solomon's idolatry. The rebel yell is heard in verse 16. Now when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king saying, What share have we in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Now see to your own house, O David. So Israel departed to their tents. They threw the tea in the harbor. It was their statement of revolution. You know, in the American Civil War, the southerners were the rebels. But it was the opposite in the Hebrew Civil War. The northerners were the rebels. And the southernmost tribe of Judah was the tribe that stayed faithful to David and to his descendants. David, remember, was from Bethlehem of Judah. His descendants ruled over Judah. The southern kingdom ended up with the name Judah, and their citizens were called Jews. The northern ten tribes broke away from the kings of David and formed a new nation that they named after the father of the twelve tribes, who was Israel. But Rehoboam reigned over the children of Israel who dwelt in the cities of Judah. Apparently they were members of the ten tribes that were still living within the borders of Judah. Rehoboam, he makes a boneheaded mistake in verse 18, as if that was new for him. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was in charge of the revenue, but all Israel stoned him with stones died. Now the issue here is taxes. They want some tax relief. But guess who he sends out to mediate this problem? The head of the IRS. He sends out the head of the IRS to talk some sense into the rebels. Apparently he didn't understand the extent of the rebellion or, or really even the issues. I guess you could say they filled out their version of the short form and sent Adoram's dead body back to Rehoboam. Therefore, King Rehoboam mounted his chariot in haste to flee to Jerusalem. He, he was afraid for his life. We're told in verse 19, So Israel had been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And this one incident created a permanent rift in the life of God's people. 
For the next two centuries, the Hebrews will exist as two different nations. Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Verse 20. Now it came to pass when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had come back. They sent for him and called him to the congregation and made him king over all Israel. There was none who followed the house of David but the tribe of Judah only. And when Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all of the house of Judah with the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen men who were warriors, to fight against the house of Israel, that he might restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. Now, when Rehoboam returns home, he readies his army. He's going to march. He's going to put down this coup and reunite the nation. You might have noticed something in these verses. This is where it does get a little confusing. Notice, Rehoboam's 180,000 troops are made up from two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. Whereas verse 20 tells us that only one tribe remained loyal to the house of David, and that was the tribe of Judah. So what is the deal with the tiny little tribe of Benjamin? Originally, the borders of Benjamin were just north of Judah. And yet over the years, the Benjamites spent so much of their time worshiping in Jerusalem and visiting Jerusalem and trading in Jerusalem that they lost much of their tribal identity. And they end up getting assimilated into the tribe of Judah. Sometimes they're distinguished. Most of the time they're not. This is also true of the very southernmost tribe of Simeon. Verse 22. But the word of God came to Shimeiah, the man of God, saying, Speak to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, You shall not go up nor fight against your brethren, the children of Israel. Let every man return to his house, for this thing is from me. Therefore they obeyed the word of the Lord and turned back according to the word of the Lord. War is averted by a word from the Lord. Shimei speaks up. And he says that this breakup is in reality God's will. God is sovereign over all of life even over negative circumstances. In verse 24, the Lord makes it very clear to Rehoboam, this thing is from me. Notice that. All that had occurred was done to fulfill the punishment that God had pronounced on Solomon's idolatry. And here's the lesson for you and me tonight. If a thing is from God, don't fight it, man. Let it be. When Rehoboam heard that the division in the kingdom was God's will, he turned back. He gave it up. He let it be. Hey, we all experience painful breakups in life. Romantic breakups. Business breakups. Ministry breakups. Remember Paul and Barnabas? Even friendship breakups. And breakups hurt. When there's a division, we break and we ache and we bleed and we hurt and we want to hold on. We want to make it right. We're tempted to fight, to keep it together. But when it's of God, it's best to let it go. Fight against the will of God and you end up on the losing end of the battle. Rehoboam, thankfully, was able to let it go. Verse 25. Then Jeroboam built Shechem, in the mountains of Ephraim, 
and dwelt there. Shechem was the geographical center of the northern ten tribes. And it also had a very rich history, one of the reasons he probably made it his capital. In Genesis 12, Abraham worshipped God in Shechem. In chapter 33 of Genesis, Jacob built an altar there. Joseph was buried in Shechem. So it was a perfect location, both geographically and symbolically, for Jeroboam to establish his capital. Also, he went out from there and built Penuel. Verse 26. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom may return to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn back to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will kill me and go back to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Now remember, the only place a Hebrew could offer a sanctioned sacrifice was on the altar in the temple at Jerusalem. You see, Judaism was a highly centralized religion. The law required all Hebrews to come to the temple three times annually. But Jerusalem was not just home to the temple. It was also Rehoboam's capital. And Jeroboam rightly reasoned that under Judaism, his subjects, the ten northern tribes... They would be visiting Jerusalem every year, three times a year. And he worried about the political implications. Would these frequent trips, these pilgrimages, provide an opportunity for his people to reattach themselves to the king of Judah? To keep from losing influence over his people, Jeroboam concocts a plan. Verse 28. Therefore, the king asked advice, made two Calves of gold, and I don't know where he got his advice from, but he should have fired him. <laughs> Made two calves of gold and said to the people, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. And he set up one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Jeroboam solves the problem by developing his own alternative religion. You would think that of all people, Jeroboam would have guarded against repeating the sin of Solomon. Remember, he, he rose to power because God judged Solomon. But he doesn't remember the lessons. He too succumbs to idolatry. He sets up idols one in Bethel at the southern end of the kingdom and the other in Dan at the northern tip of the kingdom. Matter of fact, we have a picture. On our trips to Israel, we go to Tel Dan. This is the, the site of Jeroboam's altar. You see the, the metal altar there? That's a replica of Jeroboam's. Or it gives you the dimensions and the size of Jeroboam's altar. And then where I'm standing, where I took the picture, was actually where the golden calf stood there in um, in Dan. It was one of these sites in Dan, and there was one of these sites in Bethel. And this is where the northern kingdom they worshipped. Now, I'm sure that in Jeroboam's mind, his plan had nothing to do with idolatry. You need to understand that. In his mind, it had nothing to do with idolatry. But the problem was, that's where it led I believe Jeroboam wanted to worship God. He wanted to worship Jehovah God. 
But he worshiped God in a manner that God had outlawed. And that's what led to idolatry. Follow with me. Jeroboam did what Aaron did in the wilderness. You remember that story? He made the golden calf. It's interesting. Exodus 32 verse 4 tells us that when Aaron fashioned a calf, notice the wording, he proclaimed, he made a proclamation, and this is what he said, tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. And notice there the word Lord is capitalized, which means in the Hebrew, it's the word Yahweh. You remember in heaven, when John sees into heaven, he sees these cherubim, these living creatures around the throne of God. And they have four faces. And one of those faces is the face of a calf. These were the cherubim that were made in the temple. And if you look at the heads of the temple, they have the four faces of Revelation. The face of the calf, the face of the ox, the face of the man. What was the other face? The eagle or the lion. And so you can see, you can see the face of the calf there. You see the four faces anyway in the, in the picture there. I believe that Aaron's calf in the wilderness and Jeroboam's calves were his attempt to make a replica or representation of the one true God, the God of Jehovah. He said, you, know, you don't have to go to Jerusalem to worship God. You can just worship God at my altars, the one in Dan, the one in Bethel. Follow me? Jeroboam's golden bovines were not a violation of the first commandment. Here's a way to understand it. You shall have no other gods over me, before me. It was rather a violation of the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above. You shall not bow down to them to serve them. God forbids the employment of any physical likeness or representations of himself in worship. Now there's nothing wrong with a crucifix. It's a depiction of Jesus until you begin to use it in prayer and worship. See, there's a fine line between using a tangible object to focus my attention on God and allowing my attention to focus on that tangible object. God knows that this is a fine line. And that's why He forbids the use of any graven image in His worship. Jeroboam did not intend to introduce idolatry into Israel. But that was the net effect of his actions. His golden calves conditioned the people to embrace the blatant idolatry that would later be introduced 60 years later by a king named Ahab. Verse 30 tells us, Now this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan, he made shrines on the high places and made priests from every class of people who were not of the sons of Levi. Jeroboam ordained a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did at Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he had made. And at Bethel, he installed the priests of the high places which he had made. In, in other words... King Jeroboam just comes up with his own religion, complete with his own altars, his own priesthood, even his own feast days. It was a cult of convenience. It was a religion that didn't serve God. It served 
Jeroboam's own interests. You know anybody that worships a religion like that? They might even call it Christianity. But in reality, it's a cult of convenience. So he made offerings on the altar which he had made at Bethel on the 15th day of the eighth month in the month which he had devised in his own heart. And he ordained a feast for the children of Israel and offered sacrifices on the altar. And guys, understand, seldom does Satan tempt us with no religion. For he knows that we are worshipers at heart. That every person has an innate desire to worship that they truly can't deny. The temptation, though, is to set up a religion that suits my own tastes rather than stays true to God. The enemy waters down the truth to make it more palatable. Supposedly, Jeroboam wanted to worship God. He just didn't want to worship God in the way that God wanted to be worshipped. He worshipped God in a way that was convenient for him, where he didn't have to go to Jerusalem. And sadly, there are Christians today repeating the same mistake. There are plenty of preachers out there that have diluted the doctrines of Christianity, that have watered down the demands of discipleship. You know, the idea is to follow Jesus, but not in the way He wants to be followed, in the way that's convenient for us. Oh my, let's stay faithful to Jesus even when we have to go out of our way to do so. In chapter 13, the Lord lets Jeroboam know what he thinks of his religion. An unnamed prophet, in fact, he's simply called a man of God, pays Jeroboam a visit. And you know, that's what I want to be, a man of God. Doesn't matter if my name ever gets mentioned, just as long as I'm identified as a man of God, as this fellow was. Verse 1, And behold, a man of God went from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord, and Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. Now this is a man of God who's got some nerve. Notice here he approaches the king at the altar in the middle of a worship service. He could have been arrested. He could have been executed. This is like barging into the Oval Office or into the Rose Garden in the middle of an official state function, suddenly just barging in and pronouncing judgment on the President of the United States. This is the nerve this man of God has. Then he cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a child, Josiah by name, shall be born to the house of David, And on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you. And men's bones shall be burned on you. The ultimate desecration. Dead carcasses of the priests lying on the sacred altar. Verse 2 is an absolutely amazing prophecy. A future Judean king, a descendant of David by the name of Josiah, who, by the way, won't be born for another 300 years. The man of God says that Josiah will bring judgment on the religion of Jeroboam. He will defile the altar. He will slaughter the priests that Jeroboam has appointed. And you can flip ahead to 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 15. That's the verse that documents the prophecy's incredible fulfillment. Remember, this was uttered 300 years before it came to pass. 
But what guts it took for the man of God to walk into the king's own quarters, on his own turf, and utter these words of judgment. This was a man of God with nerves of steel. And along with the prophecy comes a sign. And he gave a sign the same day saying, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Surely the altar shall split apart and the ashes on it shall be poured out. So it came to pass when King Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God who cried out against the altar in Bethel, that he stretched out his hand from the altar saying, Arrest him. Calls for the secret servants agents to pounce on this guy. But then his hand toward him withered so that he could not pull it back to himself. God strikes him with instant crippling arthritis. The altar also was split apart and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. Needless to say, (laughs) this all gets the king's attention. And Jeroboam goes from ordering the man's arrest to pleading for his prayers. Verse 6, Then the king answered and said to the man of God, Please entreat the favor of the Lord your God and pray for me, that my hand may be restored to me. So the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him and became as before. And then the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. A few minutes earlier, he wanted to kill him. Now he's inviting him home for dinner, wants to give him a reward. You know, the king is trying to appease the man of God. But the man of God said to the king, If you were to give me half your house, I would not go in with you, nor would I eat bread nor drink water in this place. The king invites the man of God to the White House for a night in the Lincoln bedroom. I mean, he's trying to prove that he's not such a bad guy after all. He wants to win over the man of God. But the man of God stands his ground. God's act of mercy toward Jeroboam didn't nullify God's verdict on his sin. The king won't, you know, he he won't have to swap his hand for a hook, but neither is he off the hook. And the man of God won't give him that impression. He needs to repent. He needs to put an end to his sin. That's why he's not going to go into his house and fellowship with him. The man of God says in verse 9, For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall not eat bread, nor drink water, nor return by the same way you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way he came to Bethel. But an interesting situation occurs on this man of God's way home. Now an old prophet dwelt in Bethel. And his sons came and told him all the works that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. They also told their father the words which he had spoken to the king. And their father said to them, Which way did he go? For his sons had seen which way the man of God went who came from Judah. Then he said to his sons, Saddle the donkey for me. And so they saddled the donkey for him and he rode on it and went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. Then he said to him, Are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. And then he said to him, Come home with me and eat bread. And he said, I cannot return with you nor go in with you, neither can I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place, 
For I have been told by the word of the Lord, you shall not eat bread, nor drink water there, nor return by going the way you came. And this is why he had rejected the king's invitation. God had told him not to eat bread or drink water in the city of Bethel. God forbid him from eating in Bethel so that the man of God would never give the people the impression that God was pleased with what was going on in their land. That's why he wasn't to eat there, why he wasn't to stay there. He didn't want the people to think that everything was okay. But the older guy, he says to him, I too am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord saying, Bring him back with you to your house that he may eat bread and drink water. But notice this. He was lying to him. The old man cons the young prophet with that old line. God told me so. God told me so. Over the years, I've had folks try that on me. Coming to me and telling me what God has told them I need to do. And you know, I have always taken the approach that if God spoke to them, He can just as easily speak to me. Nobody wants God's will for my life more than I do. I make it a point to listen regularly. Hey, I've learned that just because a comment is prefaced, God told me, or an angel of the Lord told me, that doesn't mean it's necessarily so. Hey, God still makes direct calls. Don't forget it. And this is what the man of God learns the hard way. This older man, you see, he's a strong personality. He claims to be a prophet. And this is what happens to us, isn't it? We get intimidated. Somebody bullies us around spiritually. This older man of God, you know, he intimidates the younger man. And the younger man trusts in what the prophet has said rather than what God had already told him before. He forgets that God will never contradict himself. Don't you forget that? There are times when God does use people to speak to us. There's times when God speaks to us through a sermon or even a word of prophecy. But God will always confirm his will to us personally. Any message that comes from God to you will always be in harmony with what God has already said, His Word. The still small voice of the Holy Spirit or the Word of the prophet will never ever contradict God's written Word. You know, Paul's words in Galatians chapter 1, verse 8 would have saved this man of God a lot of problems. There Paul writes, Even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Even if an angel appears to you and contradicts the Scripture, know that despite what he says, he's not an angel from God. 1 John 4 verse 1 also applies here. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are... Nah, we need to test the spirits. This is what the man of God should have done. Verse 19 tells us, So he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water, disobeyed God. And now it happened, as they sat at the table, the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. I mean, the, the guy who was the false prophet one moment now receives a real prophecy from God to judge the guy he deceived with the false prophecy. 
You understand all that? And he cried out to the man of God who came from Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord by eating at my house, at my invitation, and have not kept the commandment which the Lord your God commanded you, but you came back, ate bread, and drank water in the place of which the Lord said to you, Eat no bread and drink no water. Your corpse shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. Notice you're not going to get a decent burial, man. What a strange after-dinner conversation. This older guy, his lie in reality was a test of God. And so it was, after he had eaten bread and after he had drunk, that he saddled the donkey for him, prophet whom he had brought back. The, The older guy even saddles the donkey for what he knows will be the man of God's last ride. And when he has gone, he was gone, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his corpse was thrown on the road, and the donkey stood by it. The lion also stood by the corpse. And there men passed by and saw the corpse thrown on the road, and the lion standing by the corpse. Then they went and told it in the city where the old prophet dwelt. This is tragic. The man of God believed a lion prophet and got eaten by a lion. Guys, make sure that you measure every so-called word from God against what the Bible has already said. Make sure. For the Bible will protect you from danger. No lion. Verse 26. Now when the prophet had brought him back from the way, he heard it, he said, It is the man of God who was disobedient to the word of the Lord. Therefore the Lord has delivered him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to him. And he spoke to his son, saying, Saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled it. Then he went and found his corpse thrown on the road, and the donkey and the lion standing by the corpse. And the lion had not eaten the corpse nor torn the donkey. It's as if the lion had been following instructions from God. And the prophet took up the corpse of the man of God, laid it on the donkey, and brought it back. And so the old prophet came to the city to mourn and to bury him. And then he laid the corpse in his own tomb, and they mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother. So it was after he had buried him that he spoke to his son, saying, When I am dead, then bury me. And you wonder where in the world this guy's coming from, you know? Strange character. When I am dead, then bury me in the tomb where the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. I'm not so sure the man of God would have liked that. For the saying which he cried out by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the shrines on the high places which are in the cities of Samaria, will surely come to pass. This man of God, he recognizes this man of God was more noble than he was. But rather than punish the liar, God punishes the young man who fell for the lie. Isn't that interesting? And yet as strange as it seems, this scenario gets repeated every single day. Mormon elders preach a false gospel. They put words in the mouth of God. They tell lies in the name of God. And yet, tragically, those who are deceived 
die and go to hell while the same false prophets continue to foster their deceptive doctrines. Same thing happens. You see, God has given us His Word. And there is no excuse for you and me not to know His Word, not to know the truth. And this is why God holds the person who believes a lie just as responsible as the liar himself. You're responsible for what's in this book. That's why you're a wise man or woman to be here tonight studying the Scriptures. Well, verse 33 tells us, After this event, Jeroboam did not turn away from his evil way, but again he made priests from every class of people for the high places, whoever wished he consecrated him. I mean, God had appointed the tribe of Levi to be the priest. Jeroboam didn't care where you were from. I mean, he just made anybody a priest. In fact, he became one of the priests of the high places. He was so wedded to his religion, he made himself his own priest. He propagated his false religion so effectively that Israel never escaped his grip. Understand this. Every northern king who follows Jeroboam ends up fostering Jeroboam's sin. Over and over we're going to read these words. He walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin by which he made Israel sin. Every king in the northern kingdom He walked in the way of Jeroboam. He walked in the way of Jeroboam. This was a sin that put a stranglehold on the northern kingdom and eventually brought its demise. Verse 34 concludes, This thing was the sin of the house of Jeroboam so as to exterminate and destroy it from the face of the earth. God will judge Jeroboam and destroy his house. 